Hello and welcome to Music Rewind, a podcast where we look to tell the stories behind our favorite albums. I'm your host, Steve Epley, and in each episode, we invite a guest on to tell us about their favorite music album, how they discovered it, and what makes it special to them. Joining me today is professional rock journalist and author Steve Rosen. Steve has been a rock journalist for over 50 years and has interviewed many of the legends we all love for publications such as Guitar World, Guitar Player, Playboy, and Rolling Stone. He also has written eight books to include his most recent book, Tone Chaser, about his friendship with the late, great Eddie Van Halen, which we will get to. Welcome, Steve, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. This is going to be a, a great conversation. Really looking forward to this. Well, Steve, we'll, we'll jump right into your album. Uh, what album did you bring to the table, and what makes it special to you? I brought one of the greatest records ever made. Um, has, has to be one of the ten greatest records ever made. The Who's, who's Next... It, it, it's just an extraordinary record. One of those records I, I keep going back to and one of the few records that you can actually listen to every single song and it's just unbelievable. The Who made a lot of great records, but that one was their high watermark. Back in, I think it was 78 or 79, I had the uh, amazing honor and pleasure to interview Pete Townsend I flew to New York uh, from LA. I was living in the Hollywood Hills and um, uh, he was doing some press for uh, The Kids Are All Right, the movie, I think the album had just mm -hmm. come out. So he was uh, doing some press and um, yeah, man. So I walk into the room and there's Pete Townsend, you know, and I, I mean, I had like, you know, 50 pages of, of questions. I mean, you know, so much I wanted to talk to him about. Um, but one of the things I knew I had to talk to him about was the Who's Next record. So we're talking and we get up to the Who's Next record. And, you know, I go, I go, Pete, you know, you guys are amazing. But, but for me, Who's Next was kind of like the greatest record you ever made. That was like the high watermark for me. He goes, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So to hear him say that was, was, was pretty amazing. It just, all those elements just came together so amazingly for them. I mean, we think of The Who as being this extraordinarily heavy band. And I mean, they were live, they, they were a heavy band, you know, they were a loud band. But, you know, you listen to that record and a lot of those songs are built around his acoustic guitar. Uh, you know, Going Mobile and um, Behind Blue Eyes, which kind of segues into an electric section there. But... But a lot of that stuff is, is, is just, you know, acoustic guitar. And he was just the master at blending acoustics and electrics. Um, Jimmy Page was also pretty amazing at that. But uh, Pete was, uh, was just remarkable, you know. And, and what made that record all the more remarkable was it, it wasn't filled. In fact, there really aren't many kind of guitar solo, solo sections. You know, Pete wasn't that kind of guitar player. You know, there's a, you know, that violin solo on Bob O'Reilly and, uh, you know, little, little kind of fill parts, you know, but, but it's not like you're listening to a, a purple record, right? Or a Zeppelin record where there's a break and Jimmy Page is doing a solo or Blackmore, you know, or, uh, you know. You're right. I never really thought of that as I was listening to it as far as, yeah, there's a lot of outstanding instrumental breaks where yeah. they're all jamming together, the three of them. Uh, obviously, Daltrey 
amazing on the vocals, but when they're jamming, it's the three of them together. And there's there's several of those. Uh, you know, uh, Bargain, you know, is the first one that comes to mind. I just love the instrumental breaks in that particular tune. It's a, it's just unbelievable, you know, and 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 you you really hit it. Um, uh, as an ensemble band, those sections where they're playing together, like you know, some people will say Zeppelin were the greatest, and you know, the Stones, the Who were the greatest band, in my opinion, that that maybe ever was. Um, uh, you know, when they were playing together, that ensemble thing, um, they were just they were just unbelievable. I have a newfound appreciation for the Who because of the show. Uh, we did Quadrophenia in a previous season, and I had never listened to that one all the way through, nor this one all the way through, to be honest, uh, until these preparing for the for these episodes. Yeah, and newfound appreciation for the way uh, Entwistle and Moon work together. You'd, you'd had in conversations, you know, best rhythm sections in classic rock, and people would say the Who. I would kind of brush them off. I was kind of more of a cream uh, yeah. preferred. But I have a new appreciation for him because, man, those two together is magic. And the way Townsend can write these songs around those two as the, the, the not, even, not really a beating heart, because I can't call Keith Moon's drumming a beating heart because it's wild, but amazing. <laughs> no, exactly, man. You bring up some excellent points. Look, man, I, I love Cream. I mean, I mean uh, you know, Clapton with Cream was, was just unbelievable. I'm a huge Jack Bruce fan, you know, and I loved his solo work after that song, Spread Taylor, his singing, you know, and, 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 you know, his cello playing. I mean, he was amazing. Baker, nobody played like that. The way he approached those songs, you know, and, and he kind of turned that, the, the beat around and politician, you know, you're trying to follow that song. They were amazing, you know, and, and Jack is one of my favorite bass players. John Paul Jones is one of my favorite bass players, you know, Tim Bogert. Uh, Chris Squire, but I really believe that all of them owe a nod to John Entwistle. And as you so rightly bring up, yeah, Keith was all over the place, man. His timing was not good, uh, which is why on Who's Next, uh, it, it's so amazing because he was kind of reined in. Uh, I, I think Glenn Johns came in to work on that. He was, he was and, a producer and, on for a bit, yeah. Right? And so he was able to, you know, kind of corral Keith, you know, and, and yeah, that stuff that he did with Entwistle was amazing. And and John, you know, what was so amazing about him, because Keith really wasn't the timekeeper, really, it was John, you know, so, so John mm -hmm. is not only the bass player, he's the timekeeper, he's sort of a, a second guitar player, the way he plays those lines, you know, he's a percussionist, the way he plays, you know, it's kind of part rhythm guitar, it was just amazing. And the Who were one of the, one of the few bands, bands are always either amazing on record or live. The Who were incredibly good both. You know, you think about Zeppelin, look, they had their moments live, but a lot of those live shows, man, they were, mm, you know, long solos. <laughs> and, you know, so in my mind, Zepp was a, was a studio band. But, but The Who, my God, you know, live at Leeds was amazing. So, so they were just yeah. an astonishing live band, astonishing studio band. I never got the chance to see them live, but I did see Roger Daltrey solo. And that was a pretty f phenomenal show because he was very engaging with the crowd, number one. He, he, he was just back and forth, really, really feeding out the crowd. Uh, but he played a lot of guitar on it, and it was a lot of acoustic guitar. 
and he would he would talk about the songs and how you know you know Pete wrote this one, but we're going to strip it down to what it truly is a blues song. You know, then they'll cut into like Magic Bus or or or, or whatever. And it was it was really neat how they kind of played all of the great Who tracks, but stripped down in a blues show. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, yeah, you don't you don't think of, of Beltry as a, a guitar player. I mean, I don't know if he ever played. I, I can't imagine he ever played guitars on on Who records. Um, I mean, I saw the Who a few times. I actually saw the Who the first time in 1966. It was unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, there was there was a store called White Front, which is kind of like a a predecessor to like a like a it's like a big department store and they had like a little music section where you could buy albums and if you bought certain albums you got the tickets you got these uh, two tickets inside uh, the album uh, to this show that was being put on at the hollywood bowl and it was the who uh the new animals you know kind of that monterey um period uh, a band called sock with camel the everly brothers it was just one wow. of these shows you know and and i went there and with my buddy i remember i bought um I'm trying to remember which record I. He bought the Mothers of Invention, the first one, uh, Freak Out. Okay. I'm trying to remember what I bought, you know, but there was a one one ticket in each record, and it was kind of drizzling that day, and literally, I think the bowl holds I don't know eight thousand, twelve thousand people. I mean, it's huge. Um, and there was like two thousand people there. There was nobody there, so literally we were sitting like in the front row. It, it, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. That's fantastic. Um, uh, my point being. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the Who uh, several times. I don't think I ever saw Daltrey play guitar. Maybe in some of the more recent tours, he might have, you know, pulled out a guitar and played. I, I, I can't speak to that. Well, that's got to be pretty amazing to to see it so early on that you know obviously hit legend status. And not only did you get to witness uh, as a fan the evolution of their music and, like you said, their their high point or high watermark, uh, because that that Tommy. And then uh, who's next? And then Quadrophenia, yeah. you know, in a in like a six year time frame. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, you got to interview them during that time. Yeah, I mean, did, were you able to ask like how they view their old stuff to their current stuff at the time and what their future was looking like? You know, I mean, I I only interviewed Pete that one time. You know, and I, I think I did ask him about some of the earlier records. Again, I had so much I wanted to talk to him about. You know. Um, he mainly wanted to talk about, you know, the kids are all right, which I did, you know, it was an amazing record. So, yeah, I mean, I probably did hard to remember specifically. I was also able, I actually, I actually interviewed all four guys. I interviewed Daltrey. Um, there was a, a film, a documentary that came out about one of the Who's performances and they had some kind of a premiere and Daltrey was there. So I literally had like 10 minutes, you know, they kind of shuttled riders in and out. So I talked to them for like 10 or 15 minutes. It really wasn't a uh, okay. interview. A little but gauntlet was, there, yeah. Same room with them. Uh, but I did interview uh, John Entwistle, uh twice. Um, I think the first time was in 74. It was the cover of a uh, guitar player, for a guitar player. And he was he was just amazing. I mean, God, he was just, he was open and, you know, just willing to talk about anything and, very self-effacing. You know, the thing that was also so amazing about him is that he really was, you know, if I can quote the title of my Van Halen book, he really was a tone chaser. I mean, John was always experimenting with different bases, you know, man, and he was building his own bases and he was trying different amp setups and different speaker configurations. So he was always after that tone, you know, 
uh, obviously the John Entwistle bass tone is a huge part of The Who. And I also had the amazingly unique opportunity to interview Keith Moon. That was that was unbelievable. That was right around the time he did um, uh, Both Sides of the Moon or Two Sides of the Moon. That solo record he did, yeah. uh, which is a pretty terrible solo record. You know, Keith was like <laughs> singing, you know, I think he did a couple of Beach Boys songs. You know, it's just an excuse for Keith to go out and, you know. That's what Who's Next is missing is some some Keith Moon vocals. Yeah, exactly. But, but he was pretty amazing. He was crazy, man. But but what I really sensed from all three of those guys was their absolute and and complete and utter devotion to the Who. They love the Who, you know. He said, you know, the who's everything. I, I, I love them, you know. So that was pretty amazing to hear that, you know. So um, how did you discover this album? Like, uh, obviously you were a fan already, but like, were you like waiting for this to hit the, the stores? Or did you have advanced listens? Or like, how, how did that happen? I mean, that's a good question, man. I mean, I had a big record collection back in the day. Uh, even before I started writing, I mean, I was collecting records. I probably had two or 3,000 records before I started writing. And then as a writer, when you start writing, you get on all these mailing lists, you know, from the labels. And so every month you're, you're, you're getting their, uh, you know, the releases, you know, so from Warners and Capitol. Um, I don't think I was, like, waiting for that record to come out. I mean, certainly I must have heard about it. I had some friends who were big Who fans and maybe they had heard it. But I mean, the first time I heard it, I thought, oh my God, this is, this is just unbelievable. And Tommy was amazing. But, but, you know, Tommy, I, I mean, Tommy, I don't know, man, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to compare those two records because they're so different. But I, I, I just heard Who's Next and I thought, oh my God, this is like, his writing and the vocals, you know, you think about Dolce's vocals and, and the harmonies with Pete and John singing those harmonies. I mean, my God, they were amazing singers, you know, and just the, the, the sound of the record. And uh, it was it was amazing. So, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly how I heard about the record, but I knew as soon as I heard it, I go, oh, my God, this is this is the greatest true record I've ever heard. This is one of the, my, the greatest records I've ever heard. You know, were you aware of the whole Lifehouse thing uh, that it was supposed to be? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was sort of into that lifehouse thing, um, you know, not seriously, but yeah, I was aware of that. You know, you go back to those lifehouse tracks now, you know, and you hear the songs on, on who's next, and you can hear where they started, and it, it, they're, they're amazing. You know, I mean, um, going mobile, I mean. It's like a bad country song. I mean, the whole feel of the thing, you know, and it's all acoustic and it's like three times as fast. And one of the big changes, it's, you know, E minor. And then I think it's a C in the, in the, in, on the who's next, but there's no C, it's just D to E minor. And Pete, in, in hearing it, you know, he, he's saying to himself, you know, wait, there's something missing. It, it needs a change. You know, for him to hear that, to me, it's, it's just genius because it makes the whole song. It sets up everything, you know. And, I mean, lyrically, you know, uh, you think of that one line, I'm an air-conditioned gypsy. I mean, to <laughs> me, that's worthy of any John Lennon, any McCartney. I mean, that sets up 
the imagery for everything. I mean, that's it's 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 just brilliant in in, in my estimation. It's lines like that that make more sense when I, I took a, I went down the rabbit hole reading what Lifehouse was supposed to be about. Yeah, how how the the nomads in this post apocalyptic world lived in air conditioned cars because of the pollution. Uh-huh. And so as oh, oh okay, it makes a little sense now. Oh, but yeah. before it was just a cool lyric. Now I kind of yeah, yeah. several of the songs make a little bit more sense to me in in light of the attempted concept album like Behind Blue Eyes, you know, sung from almost the villain's point of view. No one knows what it's like to feel these feelings like I do, and I blame you. Yeah, so really kind of neat to dive down that rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, Behind Blue Eyes, I mean, I mean, is there a greater song? I mean, come on, man, that, that thing ranks up there with the best of the Beatles, in my estimation, the Stones. It's just such a timeless song, and it's such a simple song, really. Pete's songs weren't that complex, you know, but it, it's just, you know, again. Well, it's, a, yeah. it's amazing how uh, they could take a song and you've got – Daltrey with such heartfelt lyrics, he puts he can convey a lot of emotion in just a few lines. It's it's a very very specific talent he's got there. Uh, not not to mention just the range, but just the the emotion that that he can convey. And then a few notes later, you're you're cutting into this long hard instrumental break. I and I love that transition. I love musical transitions like that, and that's just really well done. And hard to replicate. Many bands have tried, but the Who perfected it. Absolutely, you know, um, you know, and, and I don't think Daltrey gets as much credit as he should as, as a singer. You know, you think about rock singers; it's always the same guys. Uh, you know, Robert Plant, and you know, I mean, Freddie Mercury, and you know, Jagger. But you know, Daltrey, my God, he he was an amazing singer. You're right, man. He was so emotive. I remember one of the things I, I remember this so clearly. And so we were talking about, you know, the who, obviously, and he said, you know, nobody can sing the who songs better than me. It was just such a simple, <laughs> you know, thing to say, but it's like, oh, my God, you know, you know, and, and Pete is obviously an amazing singer. Nobody can sing those songs. There was a lot more Townsend vocals on here than I expected. Yeah, he, he sang a lot more. Yeah, there, there are. I mean, he, he's an amazing singer. I think he compliments Daltrey well. I, I think you know his his softer touch on the vocals. They they convey the uh, the back and forth. Uh, a lot of successful tracks there. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. You know, yeah, he'll always sing like a bridge section or you know, a, a B section thing. Yeah, it's amazing. And and Entwistle, you know, my wife. I mean, he's a great singer as well. You know, and Keith. You know, I don't know if Keith ever sings live, really, but but you know, I, I found some footage of him singing Bellboy live from Quadrophenia and it was yeah. pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably a loaded question, but uh, or how do you listen to the album straight through or do you have certain tracks that you pick out? I mean, like I said, I used to have a big record collection. I don't have that collection anymore. Um, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say I listen to music on my phone, but I'm at the gym all the time. And inevitably I'll, you know, I'll go looking for records and, and the who's next come up. Who's next will come up, uh, man, and I'll, I'll just go from track one. Uh, I'll go straight through. It's just a remarkable record. Um, I, I don't know if it gets enough attention. You know, I don't know if it's on the, you know, 
10 greatest records of all times list? I mean, it, I, I know it's an, it's always a repeat one in the, you know, at least the top fifth or top one hundreds when they, yeah. they come out. Uh, but then you, to, to start with Bob O'Reilly and, and end with Won't Get Fooled Again, I mean, those two songs are, are legendary on their own. Yeah. They, those two might have kind of surpassed the album itself as more known. It's possible. That's an excellent point, man. I'll say, well, yeah, well, you got Tommy and Quadrophenia. Those, those two albums are, are well known by their, just by their titles. Yeah. Uh, and Who's Next is also. Uh, but you, if you ask someone to say, you know, name me some things you think of when you hear The Who you're likely to hear Tommy. Yeah. You might hear Quadrophenia, but you're definitely going to hear Won't Get Fooled Again. I agree. That's something someone's going to say. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. You know, and so you think also something that we haven't touched on, you know, uh, Pete's use of synthesizers, you know, so here's this band oh, known yeah. for guitars, right? And, and he comes up with those amazing synthesizer parts. My God, nobody did that, you know? And, and then, you know, if you fast forward a little bit, uh, you know, you think about Edward Van Halen, you know, bringing synths into um, Jump and that kind of thing. Uh, Edward was a huge Who fan. And there was talk about, uh, at one point, Ed, Edward was thinking about doing a, a solo record and bringing in different people. And he had been in contact with uh, Townsend. And I thought, oh, my God, how amazing would that be? You know, Pete's writing and, and Ed's guitar playing. And it never happened, of course, but that would have been astonishing, you know. So I'm not saying that. That would have been amazing to I'm be in that you know, room. I'm not yeah. saying that Edward, you know, uh, heard, uh, you know, the who, Who's Next and, and Pete playing since to come up with jump but but i do know that he was a big who fan and you know you listen to some of, of his playing and you know it, it, it's definitely got a who thing and i had mentioned that to him he goes yeah yeah man and in fact back in the club days Ed, uh, uh edward used to sing young man blues and um he goes yeah man i sang that pretty well you know so you know he did all those who songs so um there's definitely a connection there that, that doesn't surprise me that the who would be a big uh influence on on eddie van halen with because um, i because if i remember right uh the van halens themselves were a musical family uh whether it was, was a jazz musicians i don't remember uh what what his parents were uh but but i know they were very like pushed into uh being uh artists at, at a young age you know you will play the piano you will play the uh you know the they were uh yeah. you know not pushed but you know encouraged to f- uh follow the musical uh, trend. Very yeah, early. no, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dad was a pretty um, successful uh, cl- clarinet. I don't think it was sax. I think it was clarinet. Uh, you know, he used to play in, um, you know, like orchestras, you know, uh, back in the Netherlands where they're from, you know, and they do like live radio performances mm-hmm. and, and, and that type of thing. Uh, yeah. So, so Edward yeah. and Alex, you know, were around music all the time. Yeah. And they were pushed early on, you know, um, parents thought, you know, you've got to be able to read and um, you know, Edward started playing piano, which he hated, you know, and Alex was supposed to have been a pretty good violin player. They, they come over here and they start listening to uh, British Invasion bands, Dave Clark Five. They hear the Beatles and all of a sudden, you know, they want to play guitars, you know, and Edward actually started on the drums and Alex played guitar. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, so uh, any any final thoughts on on who's next before we kind of transition into uh your career and, and other things that you've put out um 
No, I, I, I think that covers all of it. I just think that they were, uh, they, they were one of the greatest bands ever. And I think that record is one of the greatest records ever made. It's some of the greatest guitar sounds. And, you, you know, they were so heavy. And again, there's not any of those huge distorted guitars, but they were able to convey that kind of that heaviness through, again, that ensemble playing, you know. It was just a situation where those four guys, if you take away one member, it changes, you know. So sadly, we know that Keith Moon True. and John yes. passed away. Um, you know, and, and uh, uh, Kenny Jones comes in uh, to play for The Who, and I thought that was terrible. Zach Starkey, who's a very good drummer, mm, a, a little had a little bit more of that Keith Moon thing, you know. And then uh, Pino Palladino comes in, plays bass, replaces John, who's an amazing bass player. But it, it was never the same, you know. So, you know, you can't. You couldn't replace any of those guys. So, uh, yeah, one of the greatest records ever. I, I agree. It was, uh, I, I knew all the songs, but I had never listened to them yeah. straight through as an album. And great experience. I recommend it to anyone out there. If you haven't already listened to Who's Next, please go do it. So, Steve, your 50 years as a rock journalist, uh, just let me throw out there some some credentials here for, for our listeners. Uh, you've written for magazines such as Guitar Player, Guitar World, Rolling Stone, Playboy, Cream, Circus. You've interviewed, uh, as mentioned, Mr. Van Halen, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Frank Zappa, Zach Wilde, and several books out there. Tone Chaser, your most recent one, The Artist Formerly Known as Prince, Bruce Springsteen, the Beck book about Jeff Beck, story of Black Sabbath, Wheels of Confusion. Amazing, man. That is just, just and just that's, that's from what I was reading, <laughs> the tip of the iceberg. Thank you, man. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think back, I mean, I, I started writing, it was probably late 72. So it's legitimately 50 years, actually probably a little less than 50 years. I, I, I sort of, you know, kind of, drifted away from writing the, the magazine uh, thing. I probably haven't really done anything for any magazines. It's probably been about four years. So, you know, I'm probably more like 45 years. But, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a big body of work. I was lucky in as much as when I really started writing sort of in the early 70s there, it was um, a time when, you know, music magazines were sort of being born, you know. It was a nascent period. You know, so you had magazines like Guitar Player just kind of coming out, you know, and Crawdaddy and Musician, you know, these incredible magazines that, that, that were coming out. And they needed writers to provide content, you know. How did you get into it? Like, what, what was uh, your your entry point? So I started writing for my high school newspaper. Um, I was a senior. Uh, I got on the uh, newspaper, the Culver City Centurion, and rather than write about some scholastic thing, you know, school newspapers got to be about, you know, the drama club or the football team. You know, I thought I want to write about music. So I approached uh, the journalism teacher, Mrs. Carpenter, very sweet woman, um, and said, "Listen, I want to write about music." And she said, okay, you go do that. You know, so I, I sent out letters to all the clubs. You know. Um, you know, back in the day when you, you sit down, you type a letter and put it in an envelope and, you know, put a label on there. And, and, you know, so I sent out letters to the Whiskey and the Troubadour 
the Starwood, the Ice House, which is a club out in Pasadena, probably only a few blocks from where Van Halen's were living at the time. The Golden Bear, which is a, a club down south of, of where I was living in the Hollywood Hills. And, um, you know, most of them said yes. You know, just give us a call when you want to come by and review shows. So I started going and, and, and reviewing shows. I mean, I saw some amazing shows at the Whiskey early on. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, in high school? Yeah, yeah, man. I was in high school. I, I, I could not believe it. I thought they're going to laugh me off the planet. They, and they all embraced me. Oh my God, you right? know, Whiskey, you know, I, I, I mean, my God, I, I saw this is like 70, 71. I think I saw the Almond Brothers. I think maybe Chicago. I mean, just. Uh, just unbelievable gigs, you know, and, and, and Mario and Elmer, who were the two owners, they said, yeah, just show us the letter when you want to come. So I'd go show up and I'd show them the letter. I'd go, yeah, go on. It, it, it was just, it was just a, wow. It, it, yeah, man, they, they just really embraced it. And I told them, I go, listen, you know, I'm a, I'm the music editor for my, my high school newspaper and, you know, 1700 students go there. And, you know, I think some of these people would like to know about your club. They go, great. And well, looking at it, Looking at it from the outside, from the club owner, I mean, that's free advertising to 1,700 high school kids local. It is. And I will bet you, yeah. actually, what I'd love to know is how many people looking at my little reviews of, of shows there ultimately went to the whiskey. I bet a lot of them because I'd have people come up the next day, you know, and that's the other side of journalism. You know, I was I was not a popular kid in school, you know, I wasn't an athlete. But, I'd, you know, I'd write a story on seeing a, some amazing band at the Whiskey. And the next day, you know, kids who would never talk to me would come up and go, oh, I, I read your review. Yeah, that was great, man. I thought, there's something here. This, this is great, you know. I mean, I, I'll, I'll do this for free if I can talk to the cute girls. You know what I mean. Right. <laughs> so after high school, I, I went to UCLA. I went straight into UCLA. I thought, okay, you know, if you're going to you know, try to pursue this, you know, become a better writer. So I took some English classes and that was a nightmare beyond description. Um, uh, I, I remember one <laughs> teacher and I, I write about him. If I could remember his name, I might've printed his name, but I couldn't remember his name. I probably wouldn't have printed his name. He would have sued my ass. But this guy was a nasty guy. You know, I actually was able to get on the staff of the Daily Bruin, uh, like the school newspaper. And there was some really, really, really good writers. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of smart kids were going there. They had some great writers. So I was doing like um, reviews of like live stage shows, you know, it wasn't rock and roll bands, but it was like, you know, live, um, you know, uh, plays and things like that, which I, w I was overjoyed to do, you know? So I remember, you know, I do one and, and it would come out in the paper. I'd see my little byline. I remember coming into class and the teacher would be behind his desk, you know, and he'd be reading the newspaper the paper, the Dale Bruton, I'm thinking, God, I'm wondering if he's, you know, looking at my, one of my stories, you know, and, you know, he kind of be reading and then he kind of lower it, you know, and he kind of look at me, you know, and give me like a grin, like he had read it and it's the worst thing he's ever read. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote, I handed in these papers and I was getting F's and he'd write in big red, you know, not good. Who, what do you think you're doing? You know, and he took me aside one time. Um, he goes, you know, you really think you're a better writer than you are. You're never going to make it as a writer. And I remember that clearly, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe he said that to all the people Jeez. who he felt that way about. But, uh, yeah, so I, I left UCLA. I started reaching out to, to local papers. Um, 
you know, I had a couple things printed in a, in a, a little local paper called the LA star and um, just, just live reviews. Cause I wasn't on any list. I couldn't interview anybody, but I could go review live shows, you know, um, at the Palladium, Hollywood Palladium interview T-Rex and West Bruce and Lang. I remember clearly. So you use that as a calling card and that, that I use that. And then I sort of got it, got into the uh, LA free press which is a very hip and highly respected kind of an underground newspaper. It was like political, you know, but um, they had a little music section. Okay. And then that led to me meeting somebody, some people uh, at Gibson and Stromberg. They were like a, a, the first rock and roll publicists. They handled the Stones and Jeff Beck and Steely Dan and uh, Dr. Hook and Black Kangaroo, all these bands. And they sort of took me under their wing. And so they say, hey, you know, we'll let you interview Steely Dan if you interview, you know, Dr. Hook. I go, absolutely. You know, so so having the access to that, I was now able to, you know, send out, you know, legitimate interviews to different people. Had my first story in Guitar Player, which was Jeff Beck that they set up for me. That that opened up, uh, you know, a seven year run with Guitar Player. I wrote a couple of things for Rolling Stone and Cream and Musician and Circus and Zoo World and Music Life. Um, I also started writing for some Japanese magazines, um, you know, and it just kind of, you kind of build, you know, Guitar World in the mid 80s. And uh, yeah. It really kind of had the, uh, the the almost famous Cameron Crowe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Cameron, similarities um, there. you know, I, I knew Cameron kind of peripherally. I mean, we had run into each other. You know, Cameron was the golden boy. I mean, you know, Cameron at 16 had the covers in Rolling Stone. And, you know, I was I was so jealous I could slip my wrist, you know. <laughs> uh, he was an amazing writer. You know, I, I'd like to think that somehow I, I made my way out of his shadow. But, you know, I, I'm not going to begin to say I was Cameron Crowe. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was that really. So so how did uh how did the friendship with Eddie Van Halen you know pro- start progress and lead to Tone Chaser? So I was going to the whiskey a lot by then. Uh, I was on mailing lists, so I was literally at the whiskey at least a couple times a week. I mean, I was I was there a lot. Um, this is during the punk period. This is '77, and I wasn't a big punk fan. Um, and the whiskey was, was booking a lot of punk bands. So I, I, I honestly, I just had no desire to see them to go drive the whiskey, but on this one night, and I believe it's June or July 77, cheap trick is recording a live record. I thought, wow, cheap trick recording a live record of the whiskey that's worth seeing. So, uh, I take my brother, uh, who I took along to a lot of shows and, uh, we go to the whiskey and, um, we're downstairs, uh, waiting for cheap trick to come on. And um, somebody taps him on, on the shoulder, and it's Michelle Meyer. Michelle Meyer was the club's booker. I knew Michelle because I, I had a band at the time, and she actually booked my band into uh, some of the clubs she booked. She booked um, a, a, a club called Madame Wong's East, which was a pretty hip punk club back in the day. It was like downtown L.A. I mean, you, you really wouldn't want to go there at night or walk outside. But, you know, it was one of those dark, dang places that punk bands like to play. Somehow we played there. Plus, we also played Madame Wong's West. So I was forever indebted to her. I mean, you know, I, I, I love Michelle. She was amazing. And she said, listen, there's somebody upstairs you need to meet. She knew I was writing for guitar magazines. Um, so we go upstairs and we go up into one of the dressing rooms. And, you know, the whiskey dressing room is like a, it's, it's like an ashtray. I mean, 
the floor is littered with cigarettes, you know, man, and empty <laughs> beer cans and empty beer glasses. And all the bands have actually written on the walls. There's probably some amazingly famous graffiti up there, you know. And I see this guy standing over the corner, you know, smoking a cigarette. And I'm looking at him, and, and I keep trying to run over in my mind. So this is 77. Van Halen was was pretty famous in Hollywood by then, you know. The word was out there was this band, Van Halen, who were playing the Sunset Strip, had landed a deal with Warner Brothers. But there were no kind of pictures of them. Yeah, there were no magazines doing articles because nobody knew them. It was They were still kind of... Their debuts exactly. in 78. So this is like eight, eight right. months before their first record comes out. Yeah. Exactly. February 78. Ah, so okay. I'm looking at it, and I, I think I'm pretty certain I, I recognized him. You know, maybe from flyers or I, I don't know. I, I just can't remember looking at him and thinking, who is that? So I, I kind of knew who it was. But here's the kicker. I had never heard Van Halen play. Though Van Halen were playing the Whiskey and Gazaris and Starwood constantly, and I was at those clubs a lot, I had never seen them play. So I go in and she introduces me. Steve Rosen, this is uh, Edward Van Halen, Godhead. Edward Van Halen, Steve Rosen. And when she called somebody Godhead, that was Michelle's way of saying, this is as great as great gets. You know, um, she only uh, used that description for, for the absolute kings of the hill, you know. <laughs> so we start talking. And again, I'm aware that this guy was in a band called Van Halen and that they had a deal on Warner Brothers. So I'm assuming they've got to be, you know, he's got to be a good guitar player. They've got to be good bands to get a deal on Warner's because no local bands had deals like that, uh, you know. Um, so, you, you know, I, I was kind of in awe of him just for the fact that he had this major record deal. So we start talking, you know, and somehow Eric Clapton comes up and, you know, he was a monster <laughs> Eric Clapton fan. I was a huge, like I mentioned before, Steve, a huge Clapton fan. I mean, I knew Clapton, you know, Crane, Yardbirds. Um, going back to the Roosters, all those blues bands. I was kind of a Clapton snob. I mean, I knew a lot about him. So if I was talking to somebody and they made some ill-informed comment about Clapton that I thought was like beneath me or like, you don't know shit about Eric Clapton. It's like, I was very dismissive. So I kept waiting for Edward to make some comment like, you know, oh yeah, Edward, did Edward play in a band called The Yard? You know what I mean? Something dumb. I was, I was, my radar was tuned to that, you know. But with Edward, it, it was the other thing. He was so understanding of, of 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 Clapton as a guitar player and tonally, and you know, talking about Eric's figure vibrato. I mean, he, you know, he he did an infinitely deeper dive than I than I I could ever do because I I didn't understand Eric's playing like that. I played guitar. But but not I didn't understand like Edward did. So we had this amazing instant rapport about Eric Clapton. We started talking about Jeff Beck, Richie Blackmore. I mean, I loved all those guitar players. And it was just this extraordinary conversation. And so, you know, we're talking. And again, I can't remember. It could have been an hour. It could have been 45 minutes. He kind of, you know, says, hey, wait, wait, hang on. You know, and he runs out of the room. And he kind of comes back, you know, and he's got a, a pencil or a pen in his hand. He picks up some scrap of paper off the floor. Maybe it was a torn, you know, ticket or something. And he writes his phone number on there. He goes, hey, man, this is my phone number. Call me, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, talk to you again. I thought, yeah, that's that's great, man. That That's amazing. So fast forward, um, uh, February 78. 
uh, as I mentioned, I, I was getting all the monthly releases from uh, Warner's. I was on their mailing list. So I remember getting the records. It was Little Feet. It was um, uh, that Beatles spoof, um, uh, the Monty Python guys, my, my brain. Um, oh, I, I know you're talking about, but I, I can't think of the, the name of it. Eric Idle's thing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, is that and, and I, this Van Halen record. And I'm going, oh, there's that guy. And I'm looking at his picture, you know, I'm going, oh, is that a strap that he's playing, you know? So, I, you know, I, I put the record on and I put it down on the first song, you know, and it's down, 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 down. Excuse me. And I'm listening. I go, yeah, that's, that's cool. I kind of do needle drops. And I was really underwhelmed. Really? I thought, yeah, it's it's good. It, it sounds like, yeah, man, uh, you know, and, and I write about this in the book and I'm thinking, if I write this, are people going to come screaming at me and burn my house? No. But, I, <laughs> you know, my, my response to it, I, I thought it sounded like Deep Purple, but but not as good. You know, they're kind of the same kinds of fast shuffles, you know, Whoa. Um, you know, and, and, I, and Ed had kind of the vibrato thing. And, and I just I just dismissed it. And, and I want to in, inject, interject right here very quickly. The other reason was, so I grew up listening to Jeff Beck, you know, Truth and Beckola and the first Zeppelin record and the early Procol Harum records with Robin Trower and Free and Paul Kossoff and, you know, Cream. And so my yardstick, man, was really high. So if you weren't like, if you didn't blow me away like that first Jeff Beck record, you know, I, I, I just, I, it just didn't get me, you know. But I sat down and listened to it the next day. I go, you know, everybody in the world gets this record but me. I must be missing something. So I sat down and I tried to, you know, um, leave out all my pre preconceived notions. And I sat down and listened to it and I go, oh, my God. This is that guy I was talking to, you know, and, and I realized Electric guitars forever changed. The sound of his guitar, his articulation, the way he used the vibrato bar. Um, you know, it, it's funny. It, it wasn't, I mean, everybody got hung up on eruption. Um, I didn't know what he was doing. Um, I just thought it was cool, you know, but, but it, that wasn't it. It was more... It was just the way he, you know, he, he, he put the chords together and it was a live recording, you know, they, they'd be playing. And when he broke into a solo, there was no rhythm guitar behind it. I love those kinds of records, you know. So it, it was amazing. So 1978, uh, from that point on, um, um, he was still living in Pasadena with his parents. Uh, he meets Valerie Bertinelli. Valerie has bought a house in Coldwater Canyon. I was living in Laurel Canyon, which is literally nine minutes away. So he would come over to my house. I had a little guest house, you know, he'd come over, you know, and, and the first thing he'd do, he'd walk in and I had guitars, you know, in the stands and he'd pick up a guitar and he'd start playing, you know, so we'd do interviews and he's sitting there playing songs and, you know, he'd come over. That's so cool. It was unbelievable. He'd come over before like the second record came out and he goes, yeah, man, you know, we'll work on the second record, you know. So we go down to his car and he'd play me tracks of guitars and there were drums. I don't even think there were bass or vocals on it. And I'd sit there and I'd hear the tracks, you know, naked. I, you know, it was just astonishing. Then we'd go upstairs 
and he'd pull up one of my guitars and he'd go, yeah, man, this is what I'm doing in, uh, you know, Romeo's Delight or whatever the song was. And he'd be playing those riffs in front of me on my guitar, on my electric guitar, unplugged. And I have that stuff on cassette and it's, it, it, I, I was so lucky, man. It's like sitting there watching, you know, Da Vinci paint Mona Lisa or John Steinbeck type out East of Eden or I, it was just these extraordinary moments. And, and for the next, well, I, 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 our relationship ended in 2003 and, and, it, and it did start changing probably in the early nineties, but for the next 12 years, it was just astonishing, you know, and I got to spend time with this Edward Van Halen, uh, who was, you know, changing the world, you know, and saw the band perform live a lot of times and, you know, then, you know, a couple of days later, you know, he'd, he'd be in my, my house, you know, sitting on the couch, you know, drinking a beer and eating potato chips. You know, it was, it was pretty unbelievable, you know. Were you with him as far as, uh, did he have your ear during the, the band transition times, like going from Roth to Hagar and then the, the Gary Sharon dip, uh, you know, did that, were you there for those points? I was. And in fact, he said to me, you know, when Dave left the band, he said, hey, man, find me a singer. And I figure he's just goofing around, right? Like Edward Van Halen can't find a singer. Like his Rolodex doesn't have every fucking singer in the world. He couldn't have anybody he wanted singing. But he was serious. You know, I wish I'd realized how serious he was. I think I actually went out and, and um, sort of half-heartedly, you know, looked for singers. But I, I figured he was just joking. The thing about Edward was he sometimes took the path of least resistance. So I don't think that he wanted, he certainly didn't want to. And I'm not even sure that he, if he was even wired about knowing how. Now I'm just talking out loud here about being around him. And we never talked about this, about, you know, calling up singers and setting up an audition or having them send tapes. I, I just don't think he, he felt like that. I think he was too consumed with writing and, and doing things with the guitar. So, you know, he's at his mechanic and his, you know, Sammy Hagar has the same mechanic and Ed says they're looking for a singer and his mechanic says, Oh, what about Sammy Hagar? You, you know, that's how that kind of came out. Um, and in those early days with Sammy and the band, I mean, he was, he was happy, man. He loved working with Sammy. It was an entirely different experience than Dave. I think with Sammy, it was more of him sitting in the room with Sammy, working on stuff. I think with Dave, it was more he'd work on guitar parts, uh, you know, give give Dave the track. Dave would sit and do lyrics and uh, melodies um, and th then come to the studio record. But with, with Sammy, I think it was more, you know, they're in the room together. You know, Sammy's a guitar player. He's more musical. I'm not saying he's a better singer than Dave, um, but, uh, you know, he did play guitar. So I, I'm a I am a big fan of the of the Hagar era. I mean, I I like them both, but that that is the biggest difference is that Sammy Hagar had more musicianship ingrained in him yeah. to bring to the table than than Dave. Dave was the solely the front yeah. man and lyricist, whereas Hagar had that songwriting yeah. ability to contribute. Yeah, it was different, and I think it brought a lot of good out of the rest of the band when it came to more complete songs. That were a good evolution. Yeah, of yeah absolutely. I mean, it was certainly the, the next step, um, undoubtedly. Um, yeah, for a long time. Well, was it one or two records? You know, Ed was really happy, and then 
you know, clashes happen and Sammy's not working as hard as Edward wants him to and, you know, things happen. And then by, so it's 95 when um, uh, Gary Sharon comes into the band somewhere around there. By then, I, 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 I didn't have the kind of relationship I did earlier. Uh, I was not hanging out with him as much. Uh, we did talk about Gary Sharon and he was really happy about Gary. I know a lot of people dismiss that record. I, I thought it was a pretty good record. I thought Gary's actually a good singer. Um, but I don't think people were ready for, uh, yeah, one singer replacing Dave, but two singers in Van Halen. I, I think it could have been anybody. I don't think that record was good. Gary Schroen is a phenomenal singer, and, and Extreme was a yeah. was a great band in the 80s and 90s with uh, with Nunu on guitar. I feel kind of bad for Gary stepping into a very volatile yeah. situation itself. It was kind of like doomed to fail. It was. There was there was a powder keg in itself, and obviously I wasn't there. I've just read about it, and I definitely would not put that album uh, anywhere near any list of great no, albums. No. <laughs> but it's 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 mediocre at best. The lyrics are are quite terrible, but the guitar playing is is great at times. Yeah, yeah his guitar playing is really good. You know, I mean, it, it's a much more um, dynamic, panoramic guitar sound. Nothing like those early records, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Ed could never have a bad guitar sound. It was just a changed guitar sound, you know. It was, in my mind, it was a little more, uh, uh, less organic, um, you know, less of the brown sound uh, in my mind. I remember, um, I remember that came out shortly after, or somewhere after Twister, the movie that had that fantastic um, Respect the Wind track on it, mm-hmm. uh, which was... Eddie and Alex, just the two of them, all instrumental. So going from that just amazing song to Van Halen Three was was a step. Yeah, a couple yeah, steps you down. know. And then there's the, the couple songs they did for the um, the greatest hits record. Um, oh man, my my brain. A human. Um, Human's being was on Twister. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, um, you know. A lot of people thought that could have been the next evolution for Van Halen. So. What uh, what what made you uh, finally put all those years together for Tone Chaser the book? So I'll backtrack just just a minute here. Uh, so in 1985, I asked Edward. I go, Ed, look, writers are going to come after you, you know, and they're going to want to write your life story. You know, I'd like to be the person to write that. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, man, I, I can't think of anybody else who could write it. You know, and that that was astonishing for him to say that to me. We signed a simple little contract. And um, so I started working on what was going to be his authorized biography. So I'm now reaching out to his friends back in Pasadena, you know, guys who were putting, who had put on uh, shows with the band, you know, they sell out the Pasadena Civic or, you know, huge concerts at the, at, at, uh, the schools and stuff. Musicians he had played with, you know, just doing a lot of interviews. I kept trying to get Edward to sit down and, and, do some more interviews with me for the book. Look, I'd interviewed him a lot for the guitar magazines, and that was a specific kind of conversation. But I needed him to sit down, and I wanted to talk to him about, you know, his life back in the Netherlands, and, you know, what was it like, you know, his relationship with his brother, and did he have any other relatives, you know, and was he a popular kid, and, you know, when did you start smoking, and... and, all that stuff that, that nobody knew about, that, that I had to talk to him about, you know, that had to be part of the book. He would never commit to that. He always said, well, now's not the right time, you know. If a book comes out now, people are going to think my career's over. 
I go, and the only person who's going to think that is you. But so that book never happened. So 2003, the relationship ends. Fast forward 17 years. I thought about the book off and on. Um, I, I just never, honestly, the real desire to do it. I thought, my God, if I, you know, try to put this together now, you know, how am I going to remember all of those memory, you know, all those things that happened. And, but I had some guys who were always on me, hey, man, you got to write the book, got to write the book, got to write the book. And so my cat, Arpeggio, used to wake up at like two in the morning and he wanted to be fed. So I'd wake up and I'd, I'd go downstairs. I live in this little uh, two bedroom uh, upstairs and downstairs little guest house. And I'd go and feed him and I'd try to go back to sleep. And, you know, now I'm wide awake. So I, I remember going into the, you know, my computer room. And I remember the day, it was August 24th, my birthday. And um, I just start typing. And I vaguely had the idea of the book. I just start typing and I kind of come up with the, with the first paragraph. That's the intro to the book. And I'm looking at it and I go, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty interesting, you know. And the next night, the same thing happened. The cat wakes me up. And, you know, I started pulling out the cassettes, all the cassettes I'd done. I'd found these sort of hidden cassettes that I'd done with Edward that I call the Twilight Tapes because he would call me at three in the morning and he wanted to talk. And I'd record those interviews. And he had told me, you can record anything, anytime. So, you know, if I wasn't too tired or, you know, I could find the record button, I'd, I'd hit record, you know. So we just have these conversations and not specifically about music, but maybe about his family or things that he was thinking about. And, you know, I, I listened to some of those tapes early on when I started writing and there was just some amazing stuff on there. And I go, oh, my God, this this really is amazingly intimate and insightful. So, I'm, I, you know, um, I, I listened to my cassettes and trying to, you know, chronicle everything, you know, put things in, in order chronologically. And 14 months later, um, I finished Tone Chaser. I, I go... I wanted a publisher and, you know, so I reached out to some agents and not one fucking agent would even return uh, an email. And I thought, wow, uh, you know, and so I talked to my friend, Niels Lozauer, uh, Van Halen's official photographer in the early days. And uh, Neil's kind of a in your face kind of guy. He goes, don't be an idiot. Don't get a publishing deal. Do it yourself. You know, there's no money in publishing deals or anything. You know, publish it yourself. And he was right. So I found a, uh, a printer and the books came and I had taken pre-orders and the response was amazing. You know, and I sold out of that first uh, run of books, uh, printed a second edition, um, different covers, uh, a few more photos, just sold out of that. And um I'm now actually having a third edition printed. Um, I'm hoping to have those books mm, early March. And uh, yeah, the response has just been amazing. And, you know, people seem to have really embraced it. And I mean, it, it, it was a really personal book, you know. Um, I mean, I think it revealed, not revealed, that's the wrong word. It, it, it talked about Edward in a, in a very real way, not not just as a musician, not Edward, this bigger than life figure, you know, always smiling, but a guy who, you know, had had marital problems and was worried about the band and, and you know, got got down sometimes, you know, and on, on the other side of that, so did I. And 
how supportive always he was of me, you know. And um, I think people responded to that, you know. And I think they they saw or, or they saw, I've, I've read in letters that, you know, they saw similarities to their own relationships that they've had. Look, I'm not trying to pass myself off as a psychologist or psychiatrist and that. But, but being a rock journalist, as much as anything else, is just being a very good listener. And I was. So, you know, I listened and we talked. And, and I think I was somebody he could trust, you know, and respect. And people got that sense from the book. And, and that, that made me very happy. You know, that's what I was trying to convey. I was trying to humanize Edward Van Halen. Well, that's, that's fantastic. I, I hope to get uh, my hands on those, uh, that one of those next round of the printing. Uh, I have not read it yet, but I am looking forward to doing so. Yeah, man, we'll, we'll definitely get you a copy. And uh, shout out to uh, Doug Brinkler, who did Van Halen 1 on our first season. Van Halen super fan. Doug, I, I hope you're listening, and I hope you get a, your hands on this book as well. If he hasn't read it Absolutely. already, he might have been one of your pre-sales. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool, man. Um, can, I, can I put in a little plug here, Steve? Uh, absolutely. This is, uh, say, your time. Tell us where to find the book or anything you want to plug or, or where they can find you on, online. Fantastic. So uh, I am taking pre-orders. And as I said, I can't, I can't give you a, a drop-dead date, but I, I would say the first, the first couple of weeks of March, they will be here. You can pre-order the book at ToneChaserBook.com, ToneChaserBook.com, one word. And as soon as I have books in hand, you'll be able to get them on Amazon, eBay, Reverb, and Etsy. Uh, if you want to check out my Instagram page, it's pretty pretty cool. There's a lot of kind of fun photos and stuff up there. Uh, at Steve.Rosen.Guitar.Picks. And if anybody's interested in collectible guitar picks, I sell those on eBay. Yeah, and, and you can check me out on Facebook, uh, Tone Chaser Book. I think if you just type that in, you'll, you'll find me. Yeah, so if you haven't checked out the book and, and you are a fan of Van Halen, I really think you'll, 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 you'll dig the book. It's, it's much different than the other books that are out there, and those are remarkable books. Uh, you know, Brad Tulinski and Chris Skill's book and Paul Brannigan, those are fantastic books. But this one's a little, diff- little different, and uh, yeah, so uh, check it out. Outstanding. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, It was a pleasure to sit and talk with you about who's next, your career, and your most recent book, Tone Chaser, which is now on the top of my list. I must get my hands on. And overall, uh, thank you for being here. Absolutely, Steve. Had a great time. Thank you, man. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Music Rewind. This season will be a little bit different on Rollout, as I am currently on tour with Peter Pan the Musical. Now, as a cast member, though, My son, Reed Epley, has the role of Michael Darling, and my wife and I are supporting him through their North American tour. I'll get Music Rewind episodes in where I can, but family will always come first. So, your call to action this season is to first give Music Rewind a great review wherever you listen, and then go to peterpanontour.com to see this amazing production at a city near you. And now, as I always say, listen to the full album. Until next time. A podcast from the Sidereal Media Group. Back to you, anchors.